and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge. And I want to wish you a happy Mother's Day. My mom's actually here today. So, uh, oh, that got their attention. <laughs> so, um, you can go over and you can ask my mom to reveal all kinds of embarrassing stories about me when I was growing up. That would be fun, wouldn't it? Yeah. Okay, maybe don't do that. So, uh, this morning I want to talk together uh, for a few minutes about the topic of expectations. Expectations. Uh, a decade ago, our family went on a cruise holiday and uh, in the Caribbean. And we decided, since we were all the way over on the other side of the continent, we were going to stay for a little bit of extra time and enjoy maybe a little bit of a holiday on the beach. And so I uh, started looking online and I, I found a, a place, I think it was on Airbnb, and I mean, it just had stunning photos of the beach on its website. I thought, this is fantastic. This is exactly where I want to stay. And then uh, the property looked very nice and everything looked really good. And uh, so the price was right, so I booked it. So we arrived uh, with, this was a long time ago, so we arrived with two toddlers in tow, having gone through customs and gotten off the boat and all that kind of stuff. And we were a little bit tired and haggard. And we arrived and to put it very politely, the place was scuzzy, like just scuzzy. Um, the tile was cracking everywhere, uh, plaster was falling off of the walls. Uh, the property itself, yes, it was located on the beach, but uh, not really, and like it was not the photos that I had seen on the website, the kind of beach. And our little room was certainly nowhere near the beach. It looked out onto a very busy street where cars would go by at all ends of the day and the night. And without actually thinking about it very much, I had booked us into a place that was like party central in Miami Beach over spring break. <laughs> so the place came to life at about 2 a.m. and didn't go to bed again until like about 6.30 when I was getting up. So needless to say, my expectations of a nice relaxing beach holiday were not met on that particular holiday. I love how this cartoon by Randy Glassenberg, he sketches out a customer service agent saying, well, if you're not absolutely thrilled and delighted with our product, call us toll free and we'll be happy to help you establish more reasonable expectations. <laughs> what you expect is actually really important because it drives how you feel about and experience things. And we're gonna see why in, in just a minute. This morning we're wrapping up a teaching series in the book of Jude. And the book of Jude's a short little book at the end of the New Testament. And it was written by Jesus' brother, actually. And Jude has a lot of advice that he wants to give us, but he also has some warnings that he wants to give us. And he really, if we were to put it in musical terms, he asks the question, who are you listening to? Who are you paying attention to? What are your expectations that come from that? And Jude was a leader in the early Christian movement. And as he traveled around to different churches and he encountered different people, 
one of the things that he began to recognize was that churches had differing expectations and people had differing expectations of what it meant to live a Christian life. And he began to see concerns around two particular things. The two things that we've talked about over the last two weeks is one of his concerns was around false teaching and the other one of his concerns was about false teachers. False teaching is about things that can sound like they are true about God, about our lives, about the world. And when you look at them, they're almost true. They have a ring of truth to them. But in the final examination, they simply do not pass the test of being an accurate understanding of God's invitation to a full and abundant life. And so Jude says, think carefully about what kind of teaching you engage in and you allow in to your life. And then he talks to them about false teachers, people who are teaching false things. And he reminds us that we talked about last week that you can tell a lot more about a person by how they live than by what they say. And so Jude says, if you want to think about and look for false teachers, just start paying attention to how they live. Watch their lives. People that claim to speak for God, formally or informally, look at the fruit that their lives produce. And that's a vital way that you can tell whether somebody is worth listening to, whether it's a podcast or whether it's a teacher or a preacher, and whether their life is worth following and emulating. We talked about that last week. And so this morning we're going to round the corner and look at the last verses in uh, the chapter, the book of Jude this morning. And Jude helps us by asking two questions today. One is, what do you expect? And then also, what should we do about false teaching and false teachers? So open your Bible or your devices and turn with me to the book of Jude. Uh, there's a Bible in the Jericho Ridge app if you want to find it there. And we'll begin reading in Jude uh, chapter 1 verse 17. And Jude's asking the question here, what do you expect? What should you expect? Jude 1 17, but you dear friends, you should remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ predicted. They told you in the last times there would be scoffers whose purpose in life is to satisfy their ungodly desires. So the first thing that Jude says is that we should not be surprised at all when we bump into false teachers or false teaching. And the reason is because the apostles, of which Jude would have been one of them, or people like Paul or the first uh, apostles, warned us. They wrote it down. Lots of places in the New Testament, including in the words of Jesus, were instructed to be careful, to be on our guard, to watch out, because false teaching will take root. Scoffers, people who do not live for Christ, who live for themselves and their desires, we should expect to bump into them. And not just out there in the world, we should actually expect Judas writing to the church. And we should expect false teachers and false teaching to have tried to infiltrate and weasel its way into the church. 
And so it's one thing to have your beach holiday ruined by poor expectation management, but somehow when it comes to our experience in the church, we can get it into our minds of that we'll have just a pristine and, and unvarnished and amazing experience. And then suddenly when we have to get into a discussion with someone or something around an area of false teaching, it just shocks us that they would have a differing opinion than we do. Or that we would bump into and have to contend, as Jude uses stronger language earlier in the book, that we would have to persevere in the face of false teaching and false teachers. And Jude says, we shouldn't be surprised by this. This should not shock us. The apostles warned us in advance to be on the lookout and that this wouldn't just be floating around out there, that it would actually be in Christian communities. But Jude isn't talking here about Anytime you have a minor theological disagreement with someone, that you should freak out, label them a heretic, throw them out of your church. He's been talking about how we live together. The false teachers in his day and his time, remember, were advocating for things like complete sexual freedom, to live however you want to live. And so what Jude is saying is we need to pay attention, and when we bump into false teachers and false teaching, we should ask ourselves, is this someone trying to teach something as permissible or good that God has prohibited or God has said, this is not wise for you to engage with? Jude uses the language of the book of Proverbs, scoffers, those who look at wisdom, things that are wise, and say, I'm not gonna do that. That sounds like hard work. Let's do something easier. So Jude says false teachers are going to say things like, ah, don't worry about God's ideas about sexuality and marriage. We'll just find some Bible passages to make you feel less guilty. God, that, God's ideas about finance and living radically generous life, that seems like it would kind of cut into your personal thinking about savings. I mean, it sounds a bit dated. Radical generosity is great for Jude and for those people, but... I mean, Jude didn't live in Vancouver with a high cost of housing. Get real. I can't be expected to be generous in this economy, can I? The word scoffers, Jude uses, is a person who lacks sense. They lack wisdom. And Jude says we should expect these people to try and pass themselves off as wise, as purporting ways that we should live and inviting us to follow them. And Jude says, don't do it. Don't get sucked in. They might even pass themselves off as teachers or leaders in the church. They might have a massive following. But don't get sucked in if they're saying that something is permissible that God has said is prohibited. Paul says the same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, do you know what? Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So even Satan himself tries to pass himself off as that which is good and right. And so it's no wonder, Paul says, that his servants disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. 
So it's a, it's a warning for us to pay attention and be careful that we should expect false teachers and false teaching to be taking root, not just in Jude's day, but in our day and time as well. You say, oh, well, that sounds a little bit freaky because if Satan disguises himself as an angel of light and his servants disguise themselves as angels of light, how would I know if I was even bumping up against false teaching or false teachers? And Jude helps us understand some of the marks or the characteristics of false teaching. Let's look together at Jude 1 uh, verse 19. These people, Jude says, are the ones who are creating divisions among you. They follow their natural instincts because they do not have God's spirit in them. So how would you spot these people? Some of the marks of a false teacher, Jude says, are they do things like sow division or divisiveness instead of love. They lack self-control. They're just going to follow their own instincts and desires. And they are devoid of God's spirit. These are ways that we would know or have an indicator that this would be someone not to follow. Is the person always in a fruitless argument over something, insisting they're right with no humility? That can be an evidence of divisiveness. Do you hear the person talk about a vibrant spiritual life and their own engagement with God, what God is teaching them, what, what, how God is changing them to be a person more in line with the life of Christ? Or do you mostly hear them talk about themselves, their accomplishments, their own ideas? Sometimes it's difficult to spot. Sometimes it's easy. But Jude's objective here is to help us understand not just that we might recognize these people, but what, we, what should we do so that we don't get sucked in? What should our lives look like? What should our church look like? And so he switches in tone from warning to giving very practical advice. Look at Jude chapter 1 verse 20. He says, but you dear friends, you should build each other up in your most holy faith. Pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. Wait the mercy of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, who will bring you eternal life. And in this way, you will keep yourself safe in God's love. So Jude's solution isn't so much to focus on the false teaching and false teachers and be worrying and spending tons of time about, is this false teaching? Is this false teaching? Is that a person of false teacher? Jesus says, no, no, no. If you're going to focus on something, focus on getting stronger in your own faith, in your own development, so that you will have a strong and vibrant and robust spiritual life. And you won't get knocked around and blown around. In the book of James, James uses that language of blown around by every wind of teaching. You need to have a strong core spiritually. Having a spiritual fitness routine that will strengthen you so that you are strong and vibrant in your faith and so that you don't get sucked in by false teaching and false teachers. So Jude gives us some actual practical things to do here to grow spiritually. 
And the first thing he says is make every effort. Build yourself up. Make some effort to grow spiritually. This is repeated again in the book of Peter, where Peter says, make every effort to add to your faith godliness, to godliness, self-control, to self-control love for people everywhere. And so Jude is echoing this same thing and saying, it takes effort to grow and develop spiritually. And he gives us some categories and areas where we can grow. The first one that he says is, make an effort to grow and build each other up in the category of relationships and friendships. Make an effort to have connected friendships with each other so that we could build each other up in faith. One of the techniques that false teachers and the evil one likes to use to try and take people out is isolation. Just removing people just far enough from vital relationships that they kind of don't pay attention to what's happening and don't allow other people to speak truth or to speak um, a development into their lives or correction in any way. But friends, we're designed for relationship. That's how God wired us. And so it's an important part of our spiritual development as well. It's one of the reasons why we have small groups here at Jericho. It's a structure for relationships to take root in. And it's one of the gifts that God's given to us is the ability to be in relationships and in community with others. It's one of the gifts that many mothers or mother figures give to us. They build us up. They encourage us. They strengthen us. I know it's something that uh, my mom did growing up. And mom, I just want to say publicly, I want to thank you and honor you for the way in which you did this in my life. You modeled what that looked like for me. A life of encouragement, a life of faith, a life of prayer. And you'll still, I'll still get texts from my mom saying, I'm praying for you. And I thank the Lord for that and I thank you for that because you set a relational groundwork in place in my life that I could grow spiritually. And so maybe for you, if you're a mom or you have influence in another person's life, what are the things that you are building into their life that they'll carry with them? What's your plan for building spiritual depth into the lives of your kids? Part of that is just choosing what environments you put them in. If you want them to be better at sports, you find a sports team that they can play on. If you want them to grow in a spiritual way and nurture them, find environments that are spiritually healthy and put them into those environments. Whether it's with Jenna and our kids team here, whether it's figuring out how you do that in your home. And part of that also means keeping yourself spiritually healthy so that you can build into the lives of others. The first thing they say when you get on a plane and they talk about in the event of an emergency, Parents, put your oxygen mask on first and then help others around you. And the same principle is true spiritually. Don't neglect your own spiritual development or relational development and think that, oh, I'm building into the lives of my kids. Everyone around me is going to be okay. You cannot give to your kids what you do not possess. And so if you as a mother are not focused on nurturing and developing your own relationship with God to a deeper place, 
it's going to be difficult for you to communicate that and model that well to those around you. So Jude says, build up those relationships. Strengthen each other in the most holy faith. And he says, build up your knowledge of our most holy faith. One of the best environments for false teaching to take root in is just shallow soil. Places where people don't know enough about what the Bible teaches and what God's word says about life. And so that's one of the reasons why we take seriously a public teaching and preaching ministry here at Jericho Ridge. It's also why we take seriously the, um, the invitation that we regularly extend to people to get into God's word outside of the context of a Sunday morning. Because we're just not going to cover the kind of ground that's going to result in you being a deep and fully developed person if you're not spending time getting to know God in God's word. And so we have a reading plan called Project 345. And it's um, named that because it takes, on average, three minutes and 45 seconds to read through one chapter of the New Testament in, uh, if you were reading five days of the week. And so if you stick with that 345 plan, Project 345, in our app, you'll have read the entire New Testament in one year, reading three minutes and 45 seconds, five days a week. And if you've read through the entire New Testament in a year, you'll have a much better and deeper understanding of what God's speaking to you. You'll have a higher knowledge of the Bible and be able to really challenge others around you. And you can start that anytime. It's not just a January 1 plan. Just open up the app and click on Bible and then click on, it'll open today's reading for you and you just go there. Or you can get it emailed to you. You can have an audio over it. There's lots of things and ways that you can grow in building your knowledge of God's word. And so that might be a takeaway for you. You just say, I, may not, I don't know that much about the Bible. We'll help point you in the right direction. Come talk to Pastor Wally or myself. We'll get you engaged with a small group or a study or something that will help you grow in the areas that you want uh, to grow knowledge in. The other thing Jude says is build up, pray in uh, the most, uh, um, build each other up in your most holy faith. Pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you might think, well, I don't know what that means, Brad. Is that, like, I listen to some people who are really good at praying, and they just have these, like, very flowing, natural sentences when they pray. You might think, when I pray, it just sounds really stilted and awkward and, like, not elegant, you know, like when Gary Stevenson prays. But when we talk about praying in the power of the Holy Spirit... It's not for a special category of Christians. It's not about eloquent sentence structures. That doesn't equal Holy Spirit anointing and power in prayer. What it is talking about, when it says pray in the power of the Holy Spirit, it's just saying pray. All prayer is really prayer that is offered in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because if you think about it, when you pray, you're actually taking a step of faith. And you're saying, God, I, I'm going to start talking and I'm thinking you're listening. <laughs> and so that faith is always a gift of the Spirit. 
You pray believing that God is attending and that's even a small step of faith is an act and a gift of God's grace and his spirit. So when it says pray in the Holy Spirit, that's not like something to attain to as some kind of super Christian, oh, maybe I need to learn how to speak in tongues, maybe I need special languages, maybe I need to get really fancy, you know, start praying in Greek or Hebrew or something in order for God to respond. It's just saying, start where you're at, ask God, the Holy Spirit, to deepen and strengthen that element of faith in you as you pray. That's what it means to build up your prayer life. And maybe for you, you just start by saying, I don't even know how to do that. And one of the ways you can is just by hanging around and listening to other people pray. And kind of just riding on their coattails for a little bit. I can think about times in my life where I have lacked the faith to even open my mouth and pray when we've been in the middle of just a dark, dark time. And I've gone to people that I know and trust and said, I don't have a lot of faith right now, so I need you to pray for me, and I'm just gonna try, I'm gonna kind of cling to that and ask God to build my faith and, and ask you to pray faith into my life. And that's the other reason that we have people available every single weekend here to pray with and for you. Because we value stepping out in faith and learning how to pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so maybe for you, you just need to get up a little bit earlier on a Sunday morning and show up in the boardroom just beside the washrooms there. And from 9.45 till 10.15, every single Sunday, we pray together. And there is no pressure around that. No one, if you show up there and you don't open your mouth a single time and you come for five years, no one would look at you going, that was weird. You just say, I want to come, I want to listen and learn from other people and how they pray. Pastor Wally led us this morning, led us through a a stance-oriented prayer, praying through six different ways of praying. It's powerful, beautiful. Saturday before last, Meg led us through a prayer retreat, 26 people praying in different ways, creatively, through art, through journaling, through nature, walking in nature. And we just want to help you grow in your ability to pray in the power of the Holy Spirit and in faith. And so we create different environments for you to do that, to kind of be catalytic and then keep encouraging you and say, keep doing it, keep doing it, keep praying. When we gather together at the AGM two weeks from now, We're going to spend a good chunk of that time just praying together corporately and saying, God, we need your help. That's spirit-enabled prayer. So just start where you're at. Work at growing that more. And then the last thing Jude says in this is, await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ who will bring you eternal life in this way. You will keep yourselves safe in God's love. And so build up Uh, your relationships, build up your knowledge, build up your prayer life, but also some of us just need to build up our patience. We need to wait. One of the temptations that we can fall into is believing that God's love is not strong enough to hold us. That we are in a time or a circumstance or a personal situation where God doesn't care or God's love is not powerful enough to rescue us. And we tell ourselves the lie, like, well, God must not love me anymore because what I've done. I mean, God could just never forgive that. Or we tell ourselves, you know what, I might as well give up. I mean, I have no hope. And friends, 
whenever you find yourself in that place, that is a lie from the pit of hell. It is not true because Jude reminds us and says the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ will keep you safe in God's love. God will be persistent. God's love can and will keep you safe. God will be gracious and compassionate. God is slow to anger and rich in love. And for me, some of the most beautiful language in the Bible around this is the language that's used in places like Isaiah or Jeremiah about the mothering ways and nature of God. Some of the mothering uh, language in the Old Testament, like Isaiah 49 verse 15, speaking of God, says, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I, God, will never forget you. God has not forgotten you. God will not forget you. You are safe in the nurturing love of God. And friend, you might think then, oh, all of this spiritual fitness language makes it sound like that isn't really something that God is doing, makes it focus a little bit more on what I should be doing. Now I'm getting worried because doesn't the Bible talk about, you know, it's by grace and grace alone that we're saved? Does this kind of sound like works righteousness? Maybe Brad's a false teacher on this one. <sighs> well, friends, there's, there's an intriguing balance for us to pay attention to here. One of my favorite authors, Dallas Willard, he taught philosophy for decades uh, in California. And he had a little phrase that has always stuck with me that helps me understand this. It was in his book, The Great Omission, Recovering Jesus' Essential Teachings on Discipleship. And when people asked him, well, how do I receive God's grace? Can I earn it? Do I work my way into it? Or is it something that God just does? Dallas would always say this, grace is not opposed to effort, but it is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. In other words, grace doesn't mean that you and I, at one point in our lives, pray a little prayer and be like, great, I have grace, now I can do whatever I want. I'm just going to coast from here on in in my spiritual life. No, you need to put in some effort. You need to develop and grow. You need to move in another portion of the New Testament. It talks from like milk, being baby-like and just subsisting on pablum. You need to grow so that you can actually process and mature and process more meaty things. But the effort to grow is not what saves you. 2 Peter 1.5 says, you've received God's grace so make every effort to add to your faith. So you already, you've received faith, but you make every effort to add to it goodness and to goodness knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control patient endurance, and to patient endurance love for everyone. Work at it. That's the effort part. But we never come to God and say, hey God, look at all these awesome things I've done. All of this effort that I've put in. Like I am knocking it out of the park for you. Look at how many places I'm serving in my church. Look at how many times I read the Bible. 
I mean, think how many times I pray and all of these things. We don't come to God and try to convince God through our efforts or through anything that we do that we somehow have received or merited his grace. Grace is a gift, a free and unearned gift that we receive from the Lord. And that's how we approach the notion of grace. And we receive mercy and grace to find help in our time of need. And then Jude uses another interesting phrase here. And he, he uses a phrase that uh, some people in our day and time have picked up on, but he actually doesn't use the phrase. So we need to talk about it a little bit. And it's a little phrase that's come to popularity in Christian communities um, that, that Jude doesn't use, but we think that he's used. So we need to treat it a little bit carefully. Have you ever heard the phrase, love the sinner, hate the sin? Have you heard that phrase? Yeah, it's a pretty common phrase. Oftentimes it's been weaponized against people, sometimes unintentionally. But let's talk about that because we need to figure out, is this what Jude says to us? Jude is going to talk to us about two types of people and at least two types of responses that we should have. So let's look at Jude 1, uh, verses 22 and 23, where Jude says, we're keeping ourselves safe in God's love. God's keeping us, rather, safe in God's love. And because you are safe in God's love, you must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. Rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. Show mercy to still others, but do so with great caution, hating the sins that contaminate their lives, or hating even the clothing, it says, stained or tarnished by sin. It's a very complicated and tricky, and linguists and theologians will argue, how many categories are there? How many participles are there? So there's a lot of, there's a lot of sort of um, contentious uh, argument happening about what, Jane, what Jude's trying to communicate to us here. But Jude is trying to say at least, there's at least two types of people that we need to be paying attention to, and our responses are going to differ to those two types of people. And so the first type of person that James is talking about is someone who is weak, someone who is underdeveloped in their spiritual life. Their faith is not yet grown to a place of strength. It's wavering. So this isn't asking honest and legitimate questions. Jude isn't saying, Paul, those people that doubt, you better watch out. We've talked regularly and frequently about the fact that this is a safe place for questions. So Jude isn't saying, if these people have questions, their faith, that's pretty shaky. What Jude is saying is their faith is wobbly. It's not gotten to the place of being strong. This is based on immaturity. It's based on a lack of knowledge about a given topic. It's based on the fact that a person doesn't have a deep or rich understanding of uh, God's instructions. And so you cannot treat people in that category in the same way that Jude's going to talk about in a minute. 
The level of accountability is just different because the level of knowledge is different. They don't know what they don't know. And so Jude says, when you are encountering someone whose faith is wobbly, it, there's weakness or there's wavering, the response is mercy. We lead with mercy. Compassion is a better response when there is a knowledge gap or a weak faith. This is echoed in the discussion in Romans on the weaker brother or sister. Those who are weak, we rush in, not with finger wagging or with lots of Bible verses, we rush in with compassion. We walk with them to show them God's invitation for a better way to be human. We teach, we admonish, we instruct, but with a view of growing those things in their lives to healthy places, growing in friendship, growing in knowledge, growing in prayer, growing in patience. And often, this is a long haul kind of journey, but it always starts, continues, and ends with mercy. It's always rooted in a desire to have them not experience the heartache that sin brings into our lives when it runs amok. But Jude is not saying, oh, just rush in with your bleeding heart. Don't, you know, just, just compassion everywhere all the time. This is, not a, this is not a sort of anemic kind of compassion. Compassion doesn't equal complicity and it does not equal condoning someone or something. I can demonstrate radical compassion and still not agree with a friend on something. But one thing we gotta pay careful attention to is the complete absence of the word hate in this category. The only thing Jude says to show here is mercy. When people stray, pointing them back to the path to God, helping them develop an understanding of the path of wisdom is an act of mercy. When we point people back to health and life and we keep persistently offering mercy, it's mercy with some moxie as God gives you the grace. But over time, Jude says, something can happen in a person's life. And they continue to persist in this regardless of the mercy that's offered, regardless of the mercy with moxie to try and move them into a place of deeper friendship and understanding and growing and health and, and that taking that faith that is wavering and strengthening it. And then Jude says, others, so they moved into another category now, have moved to the place of, and we talked about this, willful sin. They desire to keep this resident in their lives. It's persistent. They know, so they've moved to the place of knowledge that God has given a clear instruction on something and they say, I don't care. I disagree with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lying is wrong, whatever. Sometimes I need to lie to manage my self-image a little bit better. Right, so God says sex outside of a covenantal marriage relationship is wrong. Whatever. 
So if you're involved in conversation with people who are willfully persistent, they know truth, but they're just completely persisting in this, what does Jude say to do? Jude still starts the conversation with the exact same instruction. Show mercy. Show mercy. Even confrontation is to be done in mercy. It's never to be done in a spirit of superiority or pride, a tone of self-righteousness. Showing mercy cannot be legislated. Showing mercy cannot be politicized. Mercy never others people, turns them into an enemy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So when you are attempted to post and type that blistering reply to your cousin or whomever's Facebook post, ask yourself, am I able to post this in a spirit of mercy and love? If not, do not respond. <laughs> if you cannot engage the conversation with the fundamental desire to show mercy, don't get into the fray. Mercy is seldom driven by a desire to be right or to be heard or to be seen. But mercy still can move us to places of confrontation. And that is because mercy drives us to care for people. Say, well, but Brad, it says, show mercy, but hate. How do you show mercy, but hate? Well, we have to think carefully about what it is that you're directing hatred towards here. Hating the sin without hating a person is a complex thing, and I'm not sure that we actually understand it and probably can even do it very well as human beings. Jude actually says, in, in the original language here, it's hating the clothing that has become contaminated by sin. So in other words, we're not even actually hating sin. We're hating the, the stuff that sin has gotten into. And so what Jude is probably hinting at here is saying we are to hate what sin does to people because sin ruins the lives of those who do not resist it. And the image that Jude is drawing from here is an Old Testament picture. And the Old Testament picture was related to uh, the children of Israel and the instructions they were given about dealing with contagious diseases like leprosy before we understood what that was and how it spread. And so in the Old Testament, if you touched or wore the clothes that a person with leprosy had worn, that was not a good thing because it was likely that you were going to catch leprosy from that. And so that's why Jude says, if you're going to get up close and personal with the demonstration and showing of mercy to those that are ruining their lives through continuing to harbor sin, you want to pay attention and be careful about not getting contaminated by the sin that is ruining their life and letting it take root in your own life. We're not told necessarily to hate 
sin, we are told that sin stains things and therefore we should hate the things that sin has stained because it contaminates things. We're to hate the process, as it were, of what sin does to people because we are motivated by mercy. And because we're motivated by mercy, we don't just stand back and go, oh well, I guess those people are going to experience God's judgment. Don't get close to them. No, Jude says, actually respond with mercy. Move into the place where you're actually working to try and snatch people away from that place. So you're not doing that from a distance. You're doing that from up close. And you're trying all of that time while you're so close and demonstrating such a heart filled with mercy and compassion at the same time not to allow those things to take root in your life, which is an incredibly difficult thing to do. Whenever I read this passage, I'm drawn to the story of Father Damien. Father Damien was a Catholic priest from Belgium and he was sent Uh, in the 1860s as a missionary to Hawaii. Please, Lord, send me. Here I am, Lord, send me, right? (laughs) He arrived in 1864, and he arrived at a very troubling and difficult time for the kingdom of Hawaii. At that time, uh, contact with traders from Europe and from Asia was increasing, And all of a sudden, the king of Hawaii noticed that people were dying of contagious diseases that people in Hawaii, islanders had not developed any immunity to because they were being brought from outside. Diseases like leprosy, for which there was still no identified cure at that time. And so the king of Hawaii decided we have to do something about this. And so in 1865, he declared that anyone with a contagious disease of any kind was to be quarantined on one of the islands, the island of Molokai. Not a touristy place, if you look pictures up of it. And so thousands of people were ripped away from their families and from their communities and marooned on this island. And Father Damien had arrived as a missionary and he said, who's serving those people? And the king said, no one get involved. Let them go to the island and they'll all die and we'll save the masses. And Father Damien said, I will go. I will serve them. He was healthy. He volunteered to go and minister and live among the Molokai colony. And history records that Father Damien dressed ulcers. He designed a water system for the community. He raised up and established leadership in the community to improve the state of living. He helped people build homes and furniture. They made coffins and dug graves. And six months after his arrival there, he wrote to his brother back in Europe these words, I have chosen to make myself a leper with the lepers in order to gain them to Jesus. And for 11 years, Father Damien worked on Molokai and one day he noticed that he had spilled boiling water on his skin and he couldn't feel it. Father Damien had contracted leprosy and he continued with his work 
and ultimately he succumbed to the disease in the spring of 1889. Father Damien had told the residents of Molokai, the outside world has rejected and despised you, but you are precious in the eyes of God. And I am going to choose to bear witness to that, not from a distance, but I'm going to show mercy by coming up close. Father Damien did not hate people with leprosy. He didn't even hate leprosy itself. His journals of his dying days record he hated what leprosy does to people. Leprosy isolated people. It weakened them. And eventually it killed them. And so instead of preaching about it, holding up street corner signs, arguing about the evils of sin, Father Damien did what he felt God invited him to do, a ministry of mercy. And this ministry was not undertaken from a distance and not undertaken lightly. It was a ministry that he understood was modeled on the incarnation, that he was amongst those who needed him. Father Damien wrote, God despised what sin had done, was doing, and is still doing to humanity so much that in the language of Philippians 2, Jesus was equal with God. The second person of the Trinity, however, did not consider his position in heaven something to be grasped at. But Jesus chose to come. Jesus chose to make himself available. He humbled himself even to death, to death on the cross. And a few weeks ago at Easter, we celebrated the fact that God raised Jesus to life from the dead. And in doing so, God defeated the powers of sin, the evil, and the stain of things in our own lives that can ruin relationships and destroy and distort the created world. And Jesus didn't win that from a distance. He won it by coming amongst us. And that is the way that God invites us to show mercy to others. And that's really what communion is all about that we are participants and partakers in that victory. And Jude is not unclear that we also need to be careful not to get our own clothes stained by sin. And that's what communion also reflects, a time of sober reflection and saying, God, are there things in my life that need attention? Are there things that have gotten into my heart that are destroying or distorting or ruining my life in any way that you want to wash and wipe clean? Jude says we are to await the mercy of Jesus who will bring you into eternal life. But we are still living in the time between when the victory is won and when it's fully realized. And this means that very possibly our clothes are stained. 
stained with the effects of sin in our own lives, stained with the effects of broken relationships by words that we've spoken, promises that we have broken. Sin has a nasty way of contaminating us, but even blinding us to that. But the celebration of communion reminds us that though we are stained, there is hope. And for Christians, this is found not in more effort, but in the mercy that Jesus offers to us, the mercy of forgiveness and new life in Christ. And friends, you might be here today, and that may have never, you may have never ever taken that step of saying yes to God's mercy. You've been trying hard, to work at this thing. And you've thought to yourself, I'm going to get myself pretty cleaned up. I'm going to get as close to that marker as I can. And then I can say, God, here I am. Look at how much cleaner I am now than I was back before. Friends, the way to the cross and the way to right relationship with God is not by trying harder. It's by simply receiving the mercy that is offered freely because of what Christ has done for you. And the way you do that is you say, yes, God, I believe that to be true. I need the gift of faith to take root in my life today. I need to be right in relationship with you. I know there's no way that I'm gonna be good enough on my own efforts to ever get into heaven or close into relationship with you. Cleanse me, wash me, clean me up. I give you all of my dirty, stained, clothing, filthy rags as they are. And in exchange, I want to be cleansed and walk in right relationship with you. Friends, if you've never done that, today is the day to do it. Start by saying yes to Jesus. Come and we'll pray for you and with you. We'd love to help you start into that journey of faith. Tammy and the team are going to come and lead us. Those who are communion servers are going to move to the tables at this time. And our practice here at Jericho is to uh, put the bread, which represents Jesus' body broken for us, and the grape juice uh, representing the fruit of the vine, which represents Christ's blood that was shed for us out on the table, and to put it out 